1: As I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade,
2: coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes seat. a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace.
0: Hold Your Fire,
3: a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Rob Malley. And I am Nas Modirzadeh.
1: So today, you know, first I want to say we, we're recording this on Tuesday, January 12th. And we know that given how quickly things move in the U.S., a lot may happen between then and when we are on air. But we thought it was important to come back to the events that occurred on January 6th, the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. And we are going to have, as our guest, Sheer Frankel to talk to us about that and the role played by social media. We also will be talking at the end of the show with Peter Salisbury, who's our senior analyst for Yemen, to talk about a decision that the Trump administration is making on its way out, which is that it designated the Yemen Houthi rebel group as a terrorist organization, and that is going to have very consequential humanitarian and diplomatic repercussions. But first, again, we're going to turn to the events that shook uh, the U.S. last week, Uh, Naz, and we are joined by Shira Frankel. Uh, Shira, great to have you on the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: So Shira is a New York Times reporter where you cover cybersecurity and big tech in San Francisco, also the author of An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. So you know what we want to talk to you about, but I want to start with something that I have to say, even somebody who's followed this pretty closely, and I'm sure that many of the people who are listening may not have followed it all that closely, could just tell us, so how do these groups organize on social media? What's sort of the genesis and what you know what brings them together? I'm, it's really been quite fascinating to see.
4: I think it's important to think about these groups as a number of sort of disparate efforts that came together under the umbrella ...of President Trump and what has really been a call to action by the United States president for people to believe that the vote in the United States was fraudulent. And that began almost the day after the November elections here in America. We had the president coming out and in no uncertain terms saying that there was widespread voter fraud and that Americans were being cheated, essentially... And you can imagine that created outrage, both among his supporters, but also among these kind of fringe conspiracy theorists and militia groups who are inclined to believe these kinds of ideas, especially when they're said by the president.
1: You've reported about the fact that this has been going on for some time. And maybe you just, just describe again, I'm not an expert on social media. How do these narratives get formed? How does this sort of ideology or dogma or whatever you want to call it get formed? What are the the mechanisms through which you get sort of a broad constituency that believes what you just said.
4: So put yourself in the shoes of the average American. It's the day after the election and you've logged onto Facebook, which is a social you know, network used by mainstream Americans all, all over the country. And you see there that there's a group called Stop the Steal. It's already got tens of thousands of members and they're claiming that they have evidence that the election has been stolen, that there is fraud that dead people voted, that people voted in the names of their pets, that machines illegally changed the vote from one candidate to another. And as you're watching, this group is growing in astronomic numbers. I mean, at one point, 100 new members every 10 seconds. And so you think to yourself, this isn't just me. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans out there who, like me, believe Donald Trump won. I voted for Trump. All my friends voted for Trump. Therefore, he must be the winner. And something bad may have happened here. And the more time you spend on a platform like Facebook, especially in this kind of group, the more you're convinced that other people think just like you and that there's some kind of widespread fraud happening here and that you and your friends and and the president of the United States can work together to uncover it.
3: And Shira, can I ask, I've heard and read in some of your other reporting that for those like you who are watching these groups and and looking at these social media sites, this was not a surprise, the fact that this had been planned. Is your sense that this was willfully ignored? Is your sense that this was something that wasn't taken seriously enough as it was developing in these in these echo chambers?
4: Yeah, I think there's a sense of people sort of saying, oh, well, it's just people organizing online. It's just people joining a Facebook group. And I also will say that since the day after the elections, there's been a number of kind of protests and rallies that have been held by this assorted kind of coalition of people that see themselves as Trump supporters and his his army in some cases. And so people said, well, it's probably just going to be another small rally. But in fact, what was happening is that momentum was building. They held a number of small-scale protests in November. Then they were hoping that these lawsuits would sort of bear fruit and that the courts would overturn Biden's victory in several states. When that didn't happen, I would say beginning in the middle of December, roughly December 14th, the narrative picked up that Congress was going to be the one that stopped Biden from assuming office and all of their sort of hopes and dreams and aspirations for overturning the vote were focused on January 6th. And we really saw this narrative, this, 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 I almost think of it as this kind of collective delusion, because if any of them had been reading the debunks that were published in newspapers all over the world, if any of them had been listening to authoritative figures on the elections, they would know and they would see that there has not been evidence of any kind of voter fraud here in the United States, especially not widespread voter fraud. But, in those echo chambers, they didn't see that, and they didn't hear it and so, to them, coming to the to washington d c coming to the capitol on January sixth was an act of patriotism on behalf of the president who was going to overturn a fraudulent election
3: and did you have a sense that the plans were that it would turn violent and that it would involve? sort of direct law breaking? Or was it your sense in watching that day unfold that sort of things got out of control in a way that the organizers perhaps had not anticipated? I'm sure this is the question everyone wants to ask you. It
4: is. And it's a complicated question, because this wasn't one group. There was This was at least a dozen different groups. And so I do think that there were quite a few people who were there just to hear the president speak and who were there because they saw it as yet another rally, like every other rally they had attended on behalf of President Trump. But we know from our reporting on these militia groups and these kind of other far-right movements that there were, as well, people who came there with the purpose of trying to do something. What they wanted to do to enter the Capitol building, to stop people from certifying Biden's vote, that's unclear. And different militias had different intentions. But there was one group called the Proud Boys, which I think their name has become kind of synonymous with Trump because during the presidential debates, President Trump told them to stand back and stand by. That particular group has seen themselves, and we've seen them calling themselves inside their chats, the army of Trump. And I would say that in that group especially, the chatter was very much let's do what Trump needs us to do. Let's get into the Capitol. Let's stop these members of Congress from, you know, from certifying this vote. And and their intentions seem to be, I would say, more aggressive than some of the other
1: groups. This is something I've already been obsessed with is trying to figure out in their best case scenario. And you know, we could talk about whether Trump was part of this or not, but what did they imagine would happen? I mean, when you follow them on social media, did they think that they would hold all the members of Congress and senators hostage until they would agree to certify President Trump? Did they think that they were going to burn the, the votes? And what did they think could happen in their ideal world?
4: So it's funny you should ask that, because just this morning I was looking over a live stream that I recorded from the day of the riots in the Capitol. And I was listening to the um, conversation that was happening among some of these rioters as they were walking through the halls of Congress looking for Nancy Pelosi's office. And it seems like what they thought was going to happen was that Trump himself was going to show up in the Capitol building and lead them and lead them into the you know lead them into the senate lead them into the house of representatives and depending on who they were so if they were qAnon they believe that there have been these secret military tribunals being held um, on secret government bases and that a number of democratic members of the senate um, and Cong- and that, that basically there were going to be mass arrests of everyone who was one of trump's enemies that's been a conspiracy theory that has been floating around for years now and to them this was sort of d day when all this was going to happen among the militia members, they thought that Trump was going to ask them to arrest once again people like Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, um, Democratic members of Congress who have been outspoken against Donald Trump. They they seem to think that this was their moment to erect a new government in Trump's name.
1: Yeah, that's extraordinary. People have been speaking about whether this was a coup or not. I've never quite figured out what they thought they could do. And you've actually spoken about how a number of them had weapons and some weapons were in the trunks and how they would bring those weapons. So again, it sounds like some of them had far more nefarious designs.
4: Well, they hoped the military was going to be on the side. I think that's another key element here. A lot of these characters have either police or military backgrounds. And so there was assumption on them that if they took action, the military or the police or the National Guard would um
3: side with them essentially. Even violent action. Yes. Yes.
1: I, I am curious. So these events happen. It didn't quite pan out the way they wanted. There's this backlash at least among some, I'm sure you followed their communications since then to the extent they haven't been taken down. What are they saying now? Are they looking back at it and saying, and the they I realize is nebulous, but are they looking back at saying we were betrayed, but the fight continues or it went too far? Or we're going to live to fight another day, you know, January 17th or whatever. What are you hearing now? They're incredibly fractured.
4: And and it's sort of interesting because what happened after these riots was that social media companies like Facebook and Twitter banned them. We have seen the largest ever sort of, you know, action taken by a social media company to take these people off these mainstream platforms. And as a result, they can't centralize their thoughts and ideas and kind of rally in the way that they used to. And at least for me, as someone who studies social media, this is one of the most interesting sort of moments. What happens to a group of people who have been able to sort of openly publicly organize? I mean, a lot of their sense of legitimacy has come from the fact that they're organizing on Facebook and Twitter, and they can reach people on Facebook and Twitter. And now that they are kind of scrambled and all over different communication platforms, ranging from Telegram to Signal um, to places like Clout Hub and Gab, they they don't really know <laughs> what what comes next. A lot of them are calling on Trump to tell them what comes next. Um, they think that Trump wants them to come back to Washington. And either between January 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, the days leading up to the inauguration, they want to come back to Washington, they want to go to other state capitals,
3: and they want to be told by the president what to do next. Well, I know we want to talk about the banning on Facebook and Twitter, but before we get there... Just picking up on something you said earlier, I'm wondering what is the reaction within some of these circles? And again, recognizing that they are different to the language that's being used in the mainstream or whatever we want to call it media. So we're seeing references to insurrection, rioters. Is this um, sort of building up a sense of heroism and bravery, or is there a sense of being somewhat offended at the idea of being called insurrectionists rather than simply patriots who are trying to uphold uh, what they see as the rightful result of the election?
4: Uh, You know, what's interesting is that a lot of these groups are not, they're they're so disconnected from mainstream media and from Mm -hmm. the kind of newspapers that the average person would read that I don't think they're fully aware of how this is a lot of them are not fully aware of how this has been covered. Those that are sort of seeing the headlines in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post laugh about it because to them it's the lying New York Times. They're they're a nonsense news organization that publishes nothing but false news. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I've seen really much offense being taken because these are people that have for years thought that these news organizations do not print the truth, that they are against them, that they um, are not serious, um, so, um part of the deep state in some cases. And so I, I don't think that they're bothered, really. I think what does bother them is that Trump has been relatively quiet, Um he i think the day after i want to say the the riots he he told the the group that he loved them i can't remember if it was the day of or the day after
1: the day of i think
4: the day of <laughs> that they were special right and he loved it yeah. so they were expecting more of that they wanted more pats on the back mm. from the president um that i think has been disappointing for them the believers in conspiracy movements like qanon have wanted their leader who's q to come out and support them and say something in their minds they did something they achieved something and so they want to be recognized for what they see as achievement
3: This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Shira Frenkel.
1: Before we turn to sort of the whole social media policy, I I don't know if you saw this op-ed by uh, David Blight, who's a civil war historian. He wrote a piece in the New York Times over the weekend, which we will post a link to. I just thought it was fascinating. He looked at what he calls the ideologies of lost causes. So, groups that have lost, like the um, Southern Confederates in the U.S. Civil War. He speaks about Germany after the First World War and how they recreate a narrative about their martyrdom, but how, in fact, they won even after they lost. And he looks at some of the elements of this Trumpist lost cause, which is the vision of an America that doesn't exist anymore, that is more white, that isn't gay, that doesn't have immigrants, and that is more Christian and says, you know, if you look at this, this is a narrative that might emerge from, and this will be uh, January 6th, will be a moment in that drama. I don't know, again, if because they, maybe they're not speaking as much right now because they're not as present on Twitter and Facebook. But I wonder if you're feeling that emerging sort of this, this was our day of martyrdom, but this is the ideology we're going to keep fighting for.
4: Certainly. I mean, I think there is this kind of post-cognitive dissonance of they thought mm. something was going to happen on uh, January 6th, and now the goalpost has once again been moved. It's funny because I, um, I studied millennial societies way back when I was in college, and I looked at moments of apocalypse and what happened to societies who believed an apocalypse was going to happen, and then it didn't. And when I, one of the reasons I'm so interested in these conspiracy groups and these militias and all that is that I see so many patterns in Groups that believed in, for instance, millennial expectations and those that right mm-hmm. now believe in these conspiracies. And every time the goalpost gets moved, their belief is somehow strengthened. It's not, oh, this thing didn't happen that we expected to happen. That means that we were wrong. It's, oh, we, we just need to wait a little bit longer and this thing will, will come to pass.
3: So can I turn, Sharon, now to the question of of Facebook and Twitter and the decisions that we've seen this week? I've seen a number of commentators suggesting two things I wanted to get your reaction on. The first is the idea that this could act to sober up some of these people, that the idea that the president has been banned from these major platforms might, might quell a bit of the anger and frustration. And the second is the, the idea that this is coming far too late, that these platforms ought to have banned Trump far earlier. What's your sense of, of where we are right now with this, this question?
4: Uh, it's, it's hard. Cause, um, you know, people have been calling for these platforms to ban Trump since he ran as a candidate in 2015. And this is actually something we get into our, in our book, which is look, which looks extensively at Facebook's decisions around this. And when Trump was first running as a candidate for, for office, one of his campaign slogans was that he was going to ban Muslims. And he kind of premiered this mm-hmm. on his Facebook page. He posted a video on Facebook saying he was going to ban Muslims from the United States. And that actually launched the first internal discussion at Facebook among people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg over what to do. Should they ban a presidential candidate? And they ultimately came up with this rule that Trump was a special figure. He was he was running for office and therefore he would be given special sort of you know leniency to say what he wanted. And we looked at how that was a slippery slope that sort of took us until today. Every time they made rules about what Trump could and couldn't say, he broke them, essentially. You know, we... I think for me, most startling was the start of the pandemic here in the United States. Mark Zuckerberg said Mm. the platform would be taking a zero-tolerance stance towards any kind of misinformation about coronavirus and about its cures and about how to treat it. And one month later, President Trump went and said that bleach was a treatment and that UV light could potentially be a treatment. And it was such a clear moment in my mind. It was so stark. Zuckerberg had said Mm. this was a red line. Trump had broken it. And in the day after, Facebook had to come out and essentially say, well, we know we said it was a red line, but when it comes to Trump, we're actually going to fudge this a little bit. And Trump didn't tell people to drink bleach. He just suggested that maybe drinking bleach was going to be cured. So you saw them really dancing around it, essentially, and finding excuses to keep President Trump online. And I I think what's interesting is that this moment, the storming of the Capitol, and, and I will note that the storming of the Capitol happened as a Democratic administration is about to take office and a democratic president, you know, it is a very opportune moment for Facebook to be changing its mind about Trump's account. But they nonetheless did. And they finally said, this much is too far. We're no longer going to allow Trump to to be online and to use his megaphone here. And um, I think Facebook will now have to answer questions about why they haven't done this for political leaders all over the world. Trump is not the only political leader to have used Facebook as a platform to inspire hate, especially in a time of, ri- of riots and protests. And so Facebook, I think, will now have to answer questions from their own staff as well from lawyers all over the world about why they aren't taking down other uh, political leaders' accounts.
1: And I want to come back to the question I was asked, but just on this, because obviously we're an international organization. We've done work. On the role of social media, particular we did piece recently on Cameroon. What is your sense? I mean, do you think that there is gonna be more of an effort now by social media platforms to police discourse around the world, particularly by leaders, whether it's in the Philippines or in or elsewhere, about looking at their posts and seeing whether they are inciting violence or inciting hate?
4: You know, they've set a precedent now with Donald Trump that's gonna be hard for them to get away from. At the same time, it never ceases to amaze me how few staff Facebook have that actually monitor yeah. what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, I reported from Myanmar back in 2015 when, you know, the sort of hate speech was just emerging on the platform at that point. And I remember going to Facebook and saying, you know, there's, there are problems here. <laughs> We're seeing a lot of hate speech emerge in Myanmar. It seems to be inspiring people to acts of violence. Are you going to do something? And at the time, they hemmed and hawed and and told me my my reporting was exaggerated. And now, actually, subsequently for the book, we've done a lot more reporting and found out that at that time in Myanmar, they only had two people at all of Facebook who were even monitoring the Burmese language. And, And that's just one language of the 17 languages that are spoken in Myanmar. So how could they find the hate speech? How could they possibly monitor all the content that was coming out of a country like Myanmar if they only had two people who could speak the language?
1: I mean, it does raise the question of whether, I mean, it's a big question I'm sure you've struggled with, whether these companies should have that kind of power to decide who's going to be listened to, who won't be heard. We may, the three of us, feel like silencing President Trump. You know, that's all things considered a good thing. But tomorrow could be somebody whose voice we don't think should be silenced. And already I'm hearing people saying, well, what about this group? What about that group? What's your sense about how you, this could be regulated so that it doesn't fall in the hands of a few tech executives whose views one may agree with one day and disagree with another?
4: Well, I think we're going to be, the world will be playing a game of catch-up for the next, you know, decades to come because these companies were so fast to scale and move into parts of the world that, you know, few people on the ground had time to even come to terms with what was happening when, when a company like Facebook launched. And so I do think there needs to be an international group that comes together and has has standards and has you know for me an interesting example is germany germany as a country was very very early on to say to facebook we will only allow you to continue operating here if you follow our national rules about hate speech and germany has some of the strictest rules in the world about hate speech because of the history of world war ii and so they gave facebook an ultimatum they passed a law and they said look Our new law says that you have to take down hate speech if we identify it within 24 hours. If you don't do this, here are the fines, here are the punishments, you know, eventually you will get booted out of the country. And Facebook was forced to hire thousands of people to work in Germany in order to keep up with the laws that the German government passed. And, And to me, that was such an interesting model in what countries could do if they did want to force Facebook to take action.
3: But sure. And again, I know you, you've you probably grappled with this not only in your book, but more broadly, isn't part of the issue that the U.S. is fundamentally different from Germany in that sense? That how do we deal with the idea that not just sort of a basic free expression concern, but are we moving towards a sense that there are some elected politicians whose speech needs to be mediated in order for people to be able to hear it? So You know, if we, Rob and I were talking about the fact that CNN and MSNBC in the last few weeks have also been saying we won't directly air President Trump's speeches out of a concern that there's an incitement or or abject lies being um, told. Is there a reason to be very, very careful here moving forward with the idea that the German model would impose, of course, hundreds of people, maybe better than a few people, but nonetheless groups of people working in a private corporation deciding what the public has direct access to? Absolutely. I mean, look, I think there's every reason to move carefully.
4: These platforms were very, very quick to launch themselves onto the world. And we, I think, have to be slow in moving forward and deciding how how this will be regulated going forward. And if you imagine this as a pendulum that's kind of swinging back and Mm -hmm. forth, we're right now, the pendulum's way up here in terms of shut everything down, ban everything, you know, we're going to have to find a middle middle ground here, right? I do think that it will somewhat be country by country, that every country will need to find slightly different solutions. I, I just think that this will not be a one-size-fits-all situation. America does have very different laws than Germany. And I think that here in the United States, the value that was placed on free speech, and, and Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, as Americans who grew up with that value, were more inclined to sort of believe that. But again, I go to Myanmar as sort of the opposite, as an interesting case study, because there you had a country which was under military rule, which had no institutions really of free press at the time that Facebook launched there. And it was such a different, I don't think anyone at Facebook understood what would happen when you launched social media in a country where there were no institutions of of news, of of, of sort of truth and accountability that the public trusted. And so when a rumor went viral on Facebook, there was no voice that people trusted that was sort of pushing back on that.
1: So if I could bring it back to the US and to President Trump and his his movement, quote unquote, maybe we'll conclude on this. You know, at crisis group, what we try to do is put ourselves in everyone's shoes, even the shoes of people who we may not see eye to eye with. And I've been thinking about the number of people who feel completely alienated from, quote unquote, the mainstream media, whether it's the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC, and who believe that their voices have been marginalized, that people don't respect them, they're not paid attention to, and they view themselves, I think, as represented in some way by by President Trump. Now, this decision to take him off of Twitter and Facebook and take other steps when they've tried to establish an alternative parlour, this alternative social media sort of Twitter like uh, engine, I think not just the concern that Naz mentioned, which is you know who's deciding who gets to speak and who doesn't, but if this group of people, of whom there are millions, feel not just that they're not being heard, but that they can't even speak, I mean, what does it do to them? How do they feel about being alienated and feeling like there's this elite people of which the three of us are representative, who are, de- who are deciding, okay, you can't speak, your speeches off limits? What does it do to them, and where do they channel their frustration? And are you worried about that as you followed them now for some time?
4: I'm, I'm yes, I am very worried. I have watched as these groups get pushed. Parlor was a social media platform that a lot of them went to after Facebook, and that was recently shut down. And so they went to Telegram, which is an encrypted messaging platform. And I have, I have seen the conversations become more radicalized as they've been pushed into smaller and smaller groups and more difficult to reach networks. And I I do think you can't underestimate how on Facebook even though they they perhaps created an echo chamber for themselves they were still reachable. Friends and family might see what they were posting and reach out and say, "You know, you posted this thing about dead people voting, but I saw this article that that debunked it. And can we can we have a conversation because I think, you know, I think that you're maybe believing something that isn't totally rooted in fact or totally true." And so they could have ties to their community around them their community could reach out to them i think as these groups become pushed out into the farthest corners of the internet reaching them and trying to mitigate some of the damage really that these conspiracy theories and this misinformation has done to them becomes harder and harder and they themselves become more entrenched as a group who think we are the right ones we are the we are the arbiters of truth is one phrase i saw them using this morning and this feeling that that society is against them And it's us versus them. And and I think that's a really unhealthy place for them to be.
1: Well, sure. I really want to thank you. That was uh, all at once sobering, frightening, but extraordinarily fascinating. And I know we'll continue reading you in the New York Times. I hope our listeners will rush to buy your book. I'll remind them of the title, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Thank you so much. And I hope you continue your work because it's critical that we have a better understanding of all this.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Hold your fire a podcast by the
3: International
1: Crisis Group. So Naz, I don't know about you, but I just thought this was so so enlightening to try to understand what's going on in the U.S. And it's funny because you and I, when we started this podcast, sort of vowed that we wouldn't make it too U.S.-centric, but the U.S. is just imposing itself on us, as it will in the next segment.
3: Yes, absolutely, Rob. I, I was thinking while we were speaking with with Shira that uh, it reminded me of the early days after 9-11 when there were all these conversations about who are these people and what are they talking about? And there were experts brought out who had been tracking sort of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. And all of a sudden, everyone wanted to know what they were thinking. And it was striking to me that we're having a similar kind of conversation about people who are, uh, for those of us in the U.S., are, are neighbors and fellow Citizens, uh, and and I think it's crucial that we hear from those like Shira who are watching closely and listening closely to these to these conversations.
1: Now, one thing we've we've discussed at length in the, on this podcast for the past several weeks is how much the Trump administration could still do, and it's waning days and weeks. Yeah. And we've spoken about sanctions against Iran. We've spoken about there've been also sanctions against Iraqi figures. There was a change in policy towards Taiwan. Cuba made it back on the state-sponsored terrorism list somehow. Nobody quite understands on what basis. And the issue that we've spent a long time at Crisis Group uh, dreading, which is designating the Houthi rebel movement in Yemen as a terrorist group. And my colleague, uh, Peter Salisbury, who is our senior analyst for Yemen and a great travel companion in Yemen, is with us. Peter, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So... Maybe you could tell us briefly, uh, we, we've written about it, our Christ Group has written about it, you and I have written about it, but what practically does it change that the U.S. has now designated the Houthis as a, as a terrorist organization?
2: Well, what the U.S. has done, in, in fact, is not to just issue one designation, but kind of a, a three-in-one package. So you've got something called a Foreign Terrorist Organization designation. There are specially designated global terrorists. And those can be for groups or for individuals. And what they've done is to designate the movement as a whole, Ansar Allah, as a terrorist organization and as a movement, as an SDGT, as they have it, and three of the senior leaders of of the organization. So they've kind of thrown the, the kitchen sink at them. The main impact of this is going to be... On trade it's going to be on the humanitarian situation and it's going to be on the ability of aid agencies and foreign organizations to work in the country and deal with with the houthis and what's kind of worrying about the way that the administration has approached this is the lack of clarity on where there are going to be legal exemptions where there are going to be waivers that allow people to operate in the country to meet with the houthis and to deal with them and the, the big challenge is this question of what's known as a material support provision, which basically sits within the the FTO, um, the Foreign Terrorist Organization designation, and it says that if I meet with a member of the movement um, and I buy them a cup of coffee or I give them a particularly useful piece of advice or, for that matter, a particularly bad piece of advice, it doesn't matter, that's material support to the movement and I can be prosecuted in the United States for... um, lending material support to the organization. If you're an aid agency, that's a big problem because you're not the UN. You don't have this kind of humanitarian exemption. And if you're a business, it's an even bigger problem because you go in, let's say you sell something in a Houthi area, it's taxed by the Houthis who are the de facto authorities for areas that include about 20 million people, Yemen's major markets. Technically, the goods that you've sold and you've profited from that has been to the material benefit of the the movement. So most big businesses and certainly some, some lawyers that we've spoken to in the United States have basically said, when this happens, what you do is you just cut off all ties until the legal environment is clear. And really, in the history of these kind of designations, no one's ever used an FTO against an organization like the Houthis, who control so much territory, who control so many markets with so many people in them. So we're really entering into uncharted territory. So there are arguments which we can discuss for why you'd want to do this to help build leverage with the Houthis, but but the costs just seem to massively outweigh any benefit that you might be trying to seek before considering how the Houthis might respond to what's being done.
3: Yeah, Peter, I, I'll take my interviewer hat off for a moment. This is the primary area where I we do a lot of research at mm. hls LAC and I just wanna underscore what you said. I think that the impact Regarding a group with this much territory and this many human beings under their power. Um, I think we thought ISIS was the sort of the peak of that territorial holding, but that was at its highest point, about 10 million people under ISIS control at the time of the designation. It, we have never seen this before. And, and I think you're absolutely right to highlight that the legal implications for humanitarian organizations, for businesses, and of course for mediators and negotiators, including those working with the UN and including those working for the United States government are incredibly significant. Um, and I was struck by the fact that a number of aid agency leaders, including uh, David Beasley, the World Food Program head, of course, a, a appointee of this administration, almost pleading with the administration, don't do this. Don't put us in the position where we are facing a potential famine and the byproducts of this designation at the same time. Um, with that said, I, I did want to ask you, what are we seeing in terms of the Houthi reaction? How are they, uh, how are they responding to this? Um, and, and what do you think will be the, the immediate implications for the group itself?
2: So the response from the Houthi side up till now has been pretty muted Um, and there are several different reasons for that. First, they don't have a full grasp of what this means and one of the really difficult things to understand about this is how little effort was actually put in when the US was kind of saying, we're thinking about doing this, we want the Houthis to change their behaviour. How little effort was put in from the US's side To really making it clear, finding channels to explain to the Houthis what this would mean, what the significance would be for them as a movement. There was this kind of inherent assumption that they would just get it. And the other issue is that they didn't actually think it was going to happen. So in December, just before Christmas, um, the United States designated, I think, three or four senior Houthi security officials for violations of religious freedoms. And the Houthis seem to have thought, okay, this is it. This is the limit of what they're going to do. It's no different from what happened in 2015 or when we we were placed under UN sanctions in 2014. So when this happened, in conversations I had this weekend when it became clear the administration was going to announce, they were suddenly scrambling because they hadn't realized that this was actually still coming down the pipe. And what they've told us up till now is that they will respond reciprocally. And what that that translates to is whatever impact they feel as a result of this designation, they will take action that they feel is proportionate. So you know trade can't come in into her data ports. Um one of the things that we're really worried about is that they could launch attacks on shipping, off the the Red Sea. They could intensify their attacks on um Saudi Arabia using missiles and drones. And one of the things that that we've been told by several different people inside the movement is that they're likely to cut all contact with U.S. nationals of any stripe. Um, If they work for the UN, humanitarian organizations, it doesn't matter. So kind of like for like, tit for tat designation. And we're just sort of moving towards this this spiral of, of worsening diplomatic situation, a worsening humanitarian situation, and probably an escalation of the conflict both at the national and the regional level.
1: But so, you know, one of the most outrageous things about what the U.S. did is that it does it with only a few days left when, uh, you know, they're on their way out and they're doing a lot of sort of what I described as scorched earth policies uh, on their way out. But the redeeming feature, of course, it is because it it is at the end of their presidency. So a President Biden has every opportunity to reverse it. So I'm curious whether you Have any recommendation for how they should do it, what they should do, or if you have any sense of of how they they may be thinking about it, and whether that's something the Houthis may also be thinking, this may not last that much longer?
2: Well, uh, listeners of the podcast won't be excited to learn the inner workings of Crisis Group, but Rob's actually got an email that he can't see right now with uh, a statement <laughs> that we've been drafting pretty much addressing this, this question. So you can read that online as well, I guess. Um, look, uh, what what we've, we've said is the three things that need to happen. The first is to do with, with waivers. So look, the, the Trump administration isn't going to reverse course on this. But one of the, the challenges we have is that it hasn't actually completed this package, and and Naz probably can can speak to sort of the importance of this, this package of waivers and exemptions that the Treasury Department normally issues alongside these kind of designations, making it clear to aid agencies and businesses what the operating environment is legally. None of that is there, which means that many organisations will have, on the basis of, of their internal legal advice, to just halt operations in Yemen. So the first thing that we're saying is that the U.S. absolutely fundamentally needs to complete this package of of waivers in time so that when the designation comes into force, there is a legal uh, guidance there for for people to operate with. Secondly, those waivers don't yet apply to commercial entities, which supply 90 percent, for example, of, of Yemen's wheat by importing it. They need guidance. There need to be really clear signals from the administration, from the Treasury, from Justice Department saying, hey, we're not going to prosecute you if you do business to bring basic goods into Yemen. It's not going to happen. And in ideal case, they'd issue waivers. And finally, what we say is the Biden administration, as a matter of priority, should reverse at least some of these designations. So the blanket designations of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization and especially designated global terrorist organization; those need to go simply because the the costs outweigh the the benefits. And if people want to have um, leverage of some kind with with the movement, if they feel that this can't be seen as being sort of purely to the Houthis' benefit and, and just backtracking, then maybe they could leave in place these these designations of, of three top Houthi leaders as kind of a symbolic gesture. And if they so want, they can they can use that to kind of wind up or attack economic networks which benefit the Houthis, but don't interrupt the flow of goods in into the country. Um, but that would really be up to the the judgment of the administration. But these big blanket designations really do need to go because the the cost's just too high.
3: And I don't mean to add a voice of gloom here, but I would add to that just how important speed is because um, we have very very little precedent for designations being reversed once they are made. It tends to take years, if not decades, for designations to be removed, just because of how thick administratively they tend to be within the government bureaucracy. And so, I mean, I would say this would have to be a priority almost in week one so that you could prevent the bureaucratic spread of the designation, which will begin the minute after it
1: goes into place. Yeah. Why not day one? I mean, again, I think you make a very good point, but I'll conclude on this because we're out of time, but all designations have a political side. This one was entirely done for political reasons, and it's demonstrated by the fact that it's done in the last days of the administration. If they had felt this urgent matter, they could have done it sooner. They did it as a parting gift, a poison gift to the Biden administration, and one can hope that the Biden administration will react accordingly. Peter, thank you. I'll turn to your statement immediately and uh, <laughs> love working with you on Yemen and hopefully better days ahead.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thank you.
3: Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Well, Rob, another fascinating conversation. I wanted to ask if you could tell me and our listeners, what should we be reading this
1: week from the Crisis Group? Some fascinating publications. So one piece on what the Biden administration should do about Afghanistan, a very, very critical file on their desk and a piece on how the EU should be funding African peace and security missions. And finally, a piece on the fifth anniversary of the Iran nuclear deal. And again, the challenge for the Biden administration to put those pieces together. Thank you again, Naz, for for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, all of you, for being here. And again, remember, if you have any questions, please submit them to media at crisisgroup.org. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And as usual, Huge thanks to the Crisis Group team that puts this podcast together. Have a great week.
0: Hold Your Fire,
4: a podcast by the International Crisis
1: Group.
0: early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money, and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands.